The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, how many of you have seen a sunset that just takes your breath away? Anybody? Anybody? I know I've seen quite a few being a resident of Oklahoma growing up here. We are spoiled with many splendid sunsets. Uh, but I think maybe one of the most uh, remarkable sunsets I uh, ever saw was on Emily and I's honeymoon to Maui. Uh, the, the sunsets there are just, uh, they, they live up to the billing. And, and so when you experience one of those remarkable sunsets, you see the deep hues of the blues and the oranges and the vibrancy of the pinks and the purples and all the other colors. What What is your natural tendency? First, you take it in a little bit, right? But then what do you do? You try to pull out the phone and you try to capture that moment so you can remember. But no matter how hard you try, that picture just will never do it justice, Right? It it, it may be a representation of the sunset, but that picture is unable to convey the experience you had in all of its fullness and its richness. So it is, so it will be this morning for us. Our, Our passage is a stunningly beautiful masterpiece of the meaning and the marvel of Christian marriage. And my prayer this morning has been, that the, Lord, that the Lord will take my iPhone 6 attempt of communicating it and that he will make his truth come alive within you this morning. It, this was one, probably one of the most difficult sermons that I prepared for so far. And the reason is because I know there are people in this room who have been married decades longer than I have. And by virtue of that, have much more wisdom and experience to speak of. And there's so much to be said on this subject, right? Where, where do you begin and where do you end, right? In Oki speak, uh, this morning I know I'm going to leave a lot of meat on the bones. Uh, and, that, and that's okay, right? And I, I don't consider myself an expert either, right? Because I have not mastered what it means to love Emily as Jesus has, has loved his bride, the church. And in fact, in preparing this sermon, I, I, I've come face to face with my own Failures and my own inconsistencies and my own inadequacies as a husband. But R.C. Sproul, if some of you know that name, he, he once wrote a, uh, an incredible, incredibly important book called The Holiness of God. If you haven't read that, I recommend that book to you. Uh, but in that book, in, in talking about that book, he, he said, I wrote this book not because I consider myself to be holy, but I wrote this book because the holiness of God prompted me to do as such, to put before God's people the, a feast of God's holiness. In, in other words, he didn't feel qualified to write on this subject, but he did so anyway because he felt compelled to do so. And so similarly this morning, I'm going to preach on the subject of marriage this morning, not to commend my own marriage to you, though I hope our marriage bears the flawed but true marks of a gospel-centered marriage. But, but I don't preach as one committing myself to you. I, my aim and my goal this morning is rather to set before you God's biblical view of marriage and draw you into the divine romance that Jesus has for his bride, 
the church. And, and I know some of you, not all of you in this room are married. And, and so you might be thinking, well, this sermon just does not apply to me. But on the contrary, A, we are to teach and to preach the whole counsel of God. And then secondly, whether you are married or not, whether you will ever be married or not in this lifetime, if you are a child of the living God, there is a marriage on your horizon. When, you, when we come into the presence of Jesus and when the bride and the bridegroom come together and to meet. And so my prayer, my, my hope, and my goal for you is that this sermon would prime the pump, would stir your affections for Jesus, and would cause you to long for that day when you see Jesus face to face. With that being said, let's read our passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it. If you have a phone that has a Bible app on it, I invite you to pull that out and follow along. God's word says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who, does not love, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Paul's quoting Genesis 2 here. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word this morning. Pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but by grace and by the work of your spirit, you would humble us such that we would be doers of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you'll notice in our passage that the Apostle Paul, he grounds our marriage today in the first marriage that existed in the Garden of Eden. You'll see that in as he quotes verse 31, Genesis chapter 2. And so in the very beginning, God creates the entire universe. He creates um, it throughout six days of creation. He creates all things on the seventh day. He rests. But, but in, as you go into chapter 2. It's interesting that as God puts Adam to the task of caring for his creation, he he says this. He says, "It, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so this idea of a helper fit for Adam, it asserts the equal worth of the woman of Eve. She is fit for him. That is, she corresponds to him. She is complementary of him. She is on his level, eye to eye, as his equal, since both bear the divine image. And so the Lord puts Adam in a deep sleep. He takes a rib from Adam's side, and he forms that rib 
into being a woman. Matthew Henry, he was a, a pastor long ago. He, he said this, that the woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And so in Genesis 2, we see this beautiful picture of marriage as Adam as head and Eve as helper. So much so that the the very first words ever uttered, ever recorded, I should say, ever recorded by human beings was that of a poem as a husband wrote a poem regarding his wife when Adam said this, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so from the very beginning, we see this relational role of male headship within the marriage, that it's not a construct of of the oppressive patriarchy. No, by quoting Genesis 2, Paul is saying here that this beautiful design of marriage, it's a stroke of divine genius that is rooted in our very existence. It's rooted in the created order, the created design. And so this idea of male leadership in the home, it's not an evolutionary social construct that's to be discarded by the whims and the desires of culture. No, this design of marriage, it is central to God's good design of creation. And therefore, it is crucial to human flourishing in our world and to the flourishing of marriages in our homes. And so therefore, as a church, we should uphold God's good design and esteem it as such. And so that's Genesis 2. It ends on a high note, right? Man and woman together in perfect harmony and love for one another. And what, yet what happens when we flip the page? We go from this beautiful marriage in Genesis chapter 2, this perfect union had, as God had designed it, and we begin to read Genesis chapter 3. We, we see how the breakdown of this same marriage led then to the brokenness of all things. As Adam, who was to be the spiritual leader, passively relegated that role of headship to Eve. And when he did so, the greatest glory of God's creation led to the greatest tragedy in the world. As Eve's failure of submission and Adam's abdication of his spiritual leadership, it ushered sin into the world. And and so in this, we see that God's good design of marriage with husband as head and wife as helper, it, it isn't the cause of oppression in our world. Rather, it was through Adam and Eve's rejection of God's good design that the oppression of sin entered into our world. In the creation fall account in Genesis, we see that an embrace of God's glorious design for marriage, it leads to human flourishing, while a rejection of his design for marriage leads to further brokenness. And so church, this is the very reason, the brokenness in our world that sin ushered into, that that sin brought about. This very reason Jesus came to this earth. He came to redeem us from our sin and to restore us out of our brokenness. Jesus, he lived a life of perfect submission and obedience to God's design. He achieved a perfect righteousness that you and I could never achieve on our own. And he went to the cross to pay the sin debt that you and I deserve to pay on our own. 
He bore the punishment you and I deserved from the holy and omnipotent God of the universe. And so what happened on the cross, the great exchange took place as Jesus bore all of God's punishment for your sin, that he might forgive all of your sin and clothe you with all of his righteousness. On the cross, Jesus shed his blood to cleanse us from our sin, to clothe us with his righteousness, such as our passage says this morning, that we are now spotless and blameless and without reproach before God's sight. And then, if that wasn't amazing enough, praise be to God that through Jesus' resurrection, we have now been given divine power the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to now walk in his righteousness and to be restored back to God's good design. Or, or to boil all that down maybe to one sentence. Maybe that was a bit much. So let's, let's simplify it. Let's distill it down. Through Jesus's death and resurrection, we are being restored back to God's good and glorious design. And this work of restoration It includes your marriage. Therefore, when you believe the gospel, when you ask Jesus to save you from your sin and to be your savior and your Lord, the way now God, the way God now redeems your marriage is by patterning it off of his redemptive work. Maybe to put it another way, the way we are to reflect the beauty and the power of the gospel is through our Marriages, Which brings us back to our passage this morning. This morning we will see the gospel's power in our marriages. And so when we think about marriage, when, 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 when I got married to Emily, uh, on the wedding day, she put this ring on my finger and we said our vows to one another. And so what, what is the purpose of this ring? Right? The purpose of the ring is to symbolize, to convey, to demonstrate, to display to others that I am a married man to Emily and, and likewise. So this is a symbol. All the focus, when, when somebody says, hey, you know, how long have you been married? I'm not going to say, yeah, take a look at this ring. And this is made out of cobalt. It's really lightweight, you know, but it's still sturdy, you know, and you, you don't go into the details of the symbol. You focus on what the symbol is pointing you to. And so it is with our marriages. The Bible says that our marriages are to be symbols, are to point and to display a greater reality. And that is Jesus' love and his marriage with his bride, the church. Your marriage, it is important, but your marriage is not ultimate because it points to the ultimate reality of Jesus' love for his people. Now, now, before we get into the specifics of how we are to do that, how we are to display the gospel in our marriages, notice with me the direct comparison Paul draws between our marriages and the gospel. Not only are we to display the gospel through our marriages, also we are to model our marriages off of the truths of the gospel. Notice what you may have caught it when I was reading, I was trying to uh, enunciate it, but notice all the as or the just as statements. In our passage, there are six different as or just as statements where Paul is comparing our marriage to what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And so what this means is that we in order for us to become better husbands and better wives, it doesn't come by listening to 
what Dr. Phil or Oprah or what anyone else in the world opines on the psychological nature and nuances of marriage. No, the way we become better husbands and wives is by gaining a greater understanding of the gospel. That's why we did an entire series when I first started as pastor here, Wednesday evenings, going through what is the gospel, right? What, what is the gospel? Because the gospel, it's not just the entry into God's kingdom where we, what we, we believe what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. No, the power of the gospel is meant to transform our entire beings, our entire lives, including our marriages. If we don't marvel at and if we are not humbled by what Jesus did on the cross, then we will not love and we will not respect our spouses as we ought. Indeed, this is how Paul structured the entire book of Ephesians. Do you remember, right? The first three chapters, heavy gospel truth. This is what Jesus has done. And this is who you now are in him. This is your newfound identity in Jesus. Really, what Jesus has done. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians is this is what you now are to do. In other words, our gospel identity leads to gospel living. And so the foundation of a strong and flourishing marriage, it isn't gained through a study of psychology. No, it's formed through a study of theology. Because your marriage is deeply theological. If your marriage was just an end to itself, then yes, Avail yourself of all the psychological resources. And those aren't bad in and of themselves, but they're just not ultimate. Because your marriage is meant to point to something greater. In our passage, Paul shows us the way we reflect the gospel in our marriage. It's by, first of all, wives modeling the church to our world. And B, husbands modeling Christ to our world. You'll, you'll notice the first three verses in our passage, it involves the, the wives in the marriage. So what Paul is saying here is, wives, you are called to model the church by submitting your, to your husbands joyfully. In other words, yield yourself to your husband's leadership. Trust him, follow him, support him as he loves and sacrificially leads you spiritually. Now, now, this isn't uh, a blanket claim for all women everywhere to submit to all men everywhere. The Bible never teaches such a thing. No, remember the context of our passage, right? It's in the context of this special, unique, glorious, beautiful relationship called marriage. And, and listen, while the world deems this view of marriage as old-fashioned, outdated, repressive and maybe even oppressive the bible's view is that this is beautiful it is dignified and it is god's gloriously good design for your marriage because this command to the wife is patterned off of the church's response to jesus when we ask jesus to save us from our sins and we see the beauty of our savior our heart's natural response is then to submit to him in all things because he has our greatest good in view. In his book, Marriage, and I commend it to you, uh, it was helpful for me when preparing this sermon, Ray Orland, he said this. He said, by trusting the Lord and embracing her calling, a Christian wife empowers her husband as no one else on the face of the earth can do. 
She is so secure in Christ that she is no longer jealous to establish her identity separate from her husband. She understands how profound it is to be one flesh with him. And she gives him her whole heart and her practical support. This is what it means to lovingly submit to the husband's leadership. It's not that you are subjugated to his authority or control. That is sinful and that is wrong. No, it means that you come alongside as the helpmate, support your husband in all things, knowing that your support of him, it is deeply profound because you are one flesh now with him. And so notice quickly the, the two qualifications that Paul gives to this command. He says in verse 22, submit, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so, ladies, when you submit to and you support the leadership of your husband, when you do this, what Paul is saying is that you are ultimately doing so not for your husband's sake, but for your Lord's sake. Now, this isn't some Machiavellian approach by Paul to manipulate ladies into doing something for their husbands. No, the reason Paul says do this as to the Lord, it's to elevate the dignity of your willing submission in marriage such that you are doing so, ladies. When you choose, when you decide, when you obey Jesus and you support and you submit to your husband's leadership, when you do that, it is a sacred act of worship unto your Lord. And so whether you're... Husband affirms it every time or takes notice of it. I know I fail in that regard. I don't affirm Emily nearly as much as I should. But even when I overlook the fact when she is coming alongside, supporting and helping me, being my helpmate, whether I see it or not, whether your husband sees it or not, listen, your Savior sees it every time. And it is well-pleasing in his sight. And notice the final qualification Paul gives in verse 24 of this, he says to do so in everything, to submit in everything to their husbands. So again, does that mean the husband has the right to ask his wife to do whatever he asks? No, that's not the case. That's called being domineering. That's called being tyrannical. What, what it means, however, is that there is no area of, a, and this is reciprocated, there is no area of a wife's life that is to, make, that is to remain excluded from her husband. There, there's no part of her life that she keeps to herself only and says to her husband, you have no place here, you keep out. No, to be one flesh in marriage means that husband and wife alike open all the doorways of their hearts to one another. This is what it means in everything, in all spheres of life. Submit, support, come alongside, be a helpmate in your now, with your husband's leadership, you are to be teammates on the same team in the same direction. And so wives, reflect the church by submitting to your husbands. And then in verse 33, by respecting your husband's leadership. Not, not, not based on their performance for you. How, how, how easy is it to respect ladies, to respect your husbands when they are loving you sacrificially, right? It, it's a bit easier to do that. What about when they maybe are sinning against you and not leading you in that way? It, it's more difficult, right? But we, but you are to do so, not based on their performance for you, but you are to do so because of Christ's saving work within you. That's what it means for the gospel to be the foundation of your marriage. All right, ladies, y'all, y'all got three verses, I think. 
the guys here, we have seven verses we got to work through. Uh, and so now we move on to what are the roles, what are the gospel roles and responsibilities of men, of husbands in the marriage? And so from the very beginning, we quickly sketched it in Genesis chapter 2, but from the very beginning, husbands were to lead their their wives lovingly and sacrificially and to cherish them as the crowning jewel of their lives. But ever since that very first sin, the greatest tendency and temptation for husbands, it either comes in the form of passivity or tyranny. And so the first command God gives through Paul that God gives to us today, men, is this. Husbands, reflect Christ by loving your wives sacrificially. Notice what Paul says in verse 25. He says, Husband, love your, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus, he didn't just sit passively back when he saw his bride, when he saw us mired in our sin. No, Jesus, praise be to God, took the initiative, went to the cross to make penalty for our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might be forgiven. He actively pursued us and he sacrificed himself for us to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or to put it another way, The way Jesus loved his bride was by laying down his life for her. Now, to be sure, right, we can never, (laughs) never love our wives to the same degree that Christ loved his bride, the church, because Jesus's love is perfect and ours is flawed and imperfect. However, that doesn't get us off the hook, man. We are still commanded And we are still called not to love our wives in the same degree that Jesus loved the church, but in the same manner that Jesus loved the church, how he loved us. So what that means is, guys, our aspiration, our greatest aspiration in life, it shouldn't be to attain a certain status before others or to reach a certain level of success in our careers or to make a certain amount of money in our lives. And it definitely doesn't mean that we spend our lives chasing after worthless hobbies in the world. No, our highest aspiration and our primary responsibility in life ought to be to daily lay down our lives in sacrificial love for our wives. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so men in this room who are married and men who maybe aspire to be married. What, what, what word would describe you best in relation to your wife? Sacrificial or selfish? Are you foregoing maybe watching that football game. And again, to my shame, right? Watching, uh, it's not bad, right? But, but, but do we, are we sacrificing our lives? Are we making sacrifices to serve our wives? Are, are we seeking to find ways how we can take things off of their plates? Are, are you looking daily for opportunities to show your bride how much you cherish her? And are you daily communicating to your wife in word and in deed, that your relationship with her, it is your highest priority and that it is more important to you than any other human relationship in 
your life. And that includes your children. There's only one relationship that displays the mystery of the gospel in this world. And that's the relationship of marriage. Listen, who you are. And this is for both men and women. Who you are. And this is single and married alike. Who you are to those closest to you is who you are, period. And so men, your maturity in the Christian life, it is directly reflected in how you sacrificially love and serve your bride or your lack thereof. We have been given the high calling of loving our brides as Jesus has loved his church. So then may we, by his grace, rise to this high calling and may we set our hand to that very task. So we are to love our wives sacrificially, but secondly, husbands, we are to reflect Christ by leading our wives spiritually. In our passage, Paul says that you are to love and to lead your wives in such a way that draws her into greater holiness. Well, one of my least favorite, and so uh, no worries if you said it around me before, but uh, uh, maybe a heads up uh, not to mention this one. Uh, but one of my least favorite phrases in the world is happy wife, happy life, right? W- within that phrase, do you not hear the ringing abdication, the passivity, and the laziness in that statement toward the man? Men, God desires so much more for your marriage than that. And therefore, he demands so much more from you in your role as a husband. Your goal in your marriage isn't just to pacify your wife so you can have a happy-go-lucky marriage in an easy life. No, your goal as a Christian husband is to spiritually lead your wife so that you can have a holy marriage. Do you remember the, the, the nature of the first sin we talked about? How it was Adam's lack of spiritual leadership, his abdication of responsibility, and his passivity that led to the breakdown and the brokenness of their marriage, and consequently the brokenness of our entire world. And so why, 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 why do you think it would turn out any differently for you if you follow in the pathway of Adam? No, just as Jesus took the initiative and just as he pursued us to lead us spiritually out of our sin and into a life of holiness in the same manner, in the same likeness, men, husbands, we are to take the initiative. We are to pursue our wives and we are to spiritually lead them into greater holiness. And so to the husbands in this room, the question is set before you. Will we be spiritually passive men in our marriage? Or will we pursue our wives as Jesus daily pursues us? Which will you model as a husband? The first Adam in the Garden of Eden or the second Adam on the cross of Calvary? Choose now this day which one, which path you will go. Now, after walking through that, how how many of you would be able to say, my marriage is a shining and perfect example of this passage. Any, any takers? Uh, yeah, okay. Don's hand is way low. Mine is lower, brother. Don't worry about that. No, there have been so many times within my own marriage where I have failed as a husband and where Emily has failed as a wife. 
Right, right before married, I, right before we got married, I asked a wise lady. I asked her, so what, what is some advice you would give for our marriage? She paused for a second, and then she said, someone once told me that the story of a beautiful marriage is the story of two great forgivers. And so listen, as a husband and as a wife, you will not always live up to the standards set before you in God's word. You will, you will fail one another. Any amens? No. In the room? Right? And so the question is, how do we respond when you feel like, ladies, your husband isn't loving you as he should? How will you respond, men, when you feel like your wives aren't? When your wife, I should say, use the singular there. Uh, we're, we're not going that route. Uh, <laughs> when your wife doesn't treat you with respect like she should. Piggybacking off of last week, will you respond according to the flesh? Or will you respond according to the spirit? Will you grow in hurt and bitterness toward your spouse? Or will you grow in forgiveness toward one another? If the gospel is to be the picture for our marriage, then listen, the grace of God must be what empowers our marriages. If the gospel is to be the picture, then his grace must be the power. And so when you are tempted next to become bitter in your marriage because of all the slights and the failures of your spouse, remember, just remember and ask yourself this question. How many times have you failed and disobeyed and disrespected the Lord Jesus? And what was his response towards you? Listen, men, just as Jesus didn't wait to take the first step, wait, wait for us to take the first step toward him, but rather he took the first step and initiated his work of salvation for us, so too are we called to model Christ in our marriages by initiating forgiveness and reconciliation toward our wives. Many times, uh, as men, this will involve us asking our wives for forgiveness, but it also means that we still take the first step to forgive in our hearts, even before our wives ask for our forgiveness. Forgiveness, it's less about a feeling that you have in your heart, and it is more about a decision you make in obedience to Christ. Just as Jesus pardoned our sin and doesn't continue to hang our sin over our head, so in our marriages we are to do the same, to forgive one another and not let sin continue to hang over our spouse's head. This is what it means to reflect the gospel in our marriages. So now in all of this, as we talk about husbands loving our wives and laying our lives down for them, and as we talk about wives respecting your husbands and submitting to their loving leadership, we need to guard ourselves from slipping into this utopian view of marriage. The Disney view of marriage, like I call it, right? That my marriage will fulfill all of my heart's desires. And while this seems basic to guard ourselves from this idea, I think many problems within marriages result from this root problem and unrealistic expectation that we are looking to our spouses to give us what only Jesus can provide and satisfy in our souls. 
once when addressing a group of single ladies, George Whitfield. How many of you uh, uh, know the name George Whitfield? He, he, he was a pastor. He was an evangelist, I'm sorry, in the 18th century. And uh, well, uh, I almost went rabbit trail, rabbit chase, but I'm not doing that. Um, but he preached a sermon titled Christ the Better Husband, the Best Husband. In this excerpt, it's a little long, but hang with me, please. I think it is really helpful and illustrates the point that Jesus, he is the one who can only satisfy our deepest heart longings. He says this, Consider who the Lord Jesus is, whom you are invited to espouse yourself unto. He is the best husband. There is none comparable to Jesus Christ. Do you desire one that is great? He is of the highest dignity. He is the glory of heaven, the darling of eternity, admired by angels, dreaded by devils, and adored by saints. For you to be espoused to so great a king, what honor will you have by this espousal? Do you desire one that is rich? None is comparable to Christ. The fullness of the earth belongs to him. If you would be espoused to Christ, you shall share in his unsearchable riches. You shall receive all of his fullness, even grace for grace here. And you shall hereafter be admitted to glory and shall live with Jesus for all eternity. Maybe, maybe do you desire one who is wise in a spouse? There is none comparable to Christ for wisdom. His knowledge is infinite and his wisdom is correspondent there too. If, and if you are a spouse to Christ, he will guide and counsel you and make you wise unto salvation. Ladies, do you desire one that is strong, who may defend you against your enemies and all the insults and reproaches of the Pharisees of this generation? There is none that can equal to Christ in power, for the Lord Jesus has all power. Do you desire one that is good? There is none like unto Jesus Christ in this regard. Others may have some goodness, but it is imperfect. But Jesus' goodness, it is complete and perfect. He is full of goodness, and in him dwelleth no evil. Do you desire one that is beautiful? His eyes are the most sparkling. His looks and glances of love are ravishing. His smiles are most delightful and refreshing unto the soul. Christ, he is the most lovely person of all others in the world. Finally, do you desire one that can love you? Maybe you're in a marriage right now where you do not feel loved by your spouse. Listen, none can love you like Christ. His love, it is incomprehensible. His love passeth all other loves. The love of the Lord Jesus is first without beginning. His love is free without motive. His love is great without any measure. His love is constant without any change. And his love is everlasting. And he ends by saying this, Everything we look for everywhere else but God can only be found in Jesus. So if you look to your spouse to, to find your life's deepest fulfillment and meaning and purpose and satisfaction, you will be found empty. But if you go to Jesus, listen, he is a well that will never run dry. And he can satisfy the deepest longings and desires of your soul. And lastly, we'll see heaven's plan for the ultimate marriage. On May 23rd, 2015, Emily and I, we stood before a crowd of people to declare our love for one another and to commit ourselves to each other. 
But as beautiful and as glorious as that day was for us, I, I vividly remember Emily walking down the aisle in her white dress. Our, our wedding and our ceremony, it was amazing and beautiful. But however, it was just a foretaste of what's to come one day. If you go to the very end of your Bible to Revelation 19, the Apostle John, he says this. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage. Supper of the Lamb. Listen, brothers and sisters and friends in this room who don't yet know Jesus. There there is coming a day for all who are trusting in Jesus. There's coming a day when the veil will be lifted from our eyes. And we will behold the face of Jesus, our bridegroom. And though we have been united to him by faith in this lifetime, there is coming a day when we will be united to Christ by sight. And we will enjoy his presence and his fellowship for all eternity. I just want to ask, don't you long for that day? And don't you want to live your lives in light of that day? When we will see by sight the one we have lived for by faith. And as John ended Revelation. I think we say together, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your marriage now is preparing you for your future marriage. The marriage of the Lamb and his bride, the church. May we then reflect the beauty and the power of the gospel in our marriages until that day when the shadow gives way to the substance and when we all get swept into the divine romance for all eternity. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.